Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist, and I'm uh, months away from my five-year anniversary. Yes, but, I mean, it's still a few months. Yeah, I bring that up because I was talking to my dad the other day. It was his birthday. and uh, How old your dad turn? 76. Good for him. I know. And it was weird. It was kind of surreal because I, I did mention this to him. Uh, I said, hey, you know what? I don't know if I would have done this by myself if you – because maybe you don't know. My dad sobriety date is the same as mine. I think that's super cool. Tell him the reason why. Because uh, he didn't want me to do something that he didn't think he could do himself. Yeah. So he wasn't having a problem necessarily nope. with drinking, but in like a solidarity movement, he yeah. did it with you. And, and and I think that gave me a lot of courage. And I, and it, and it, and it, I don't want to say it made it easier, but it, it helped. Oh, it's support. I mean, support makes things easier, I think. You know, and, and so we were talking and uh, I mean, I go, Dad, do you believe it's going to be five years? And he goes, no. And I go, yeah, September 3rd, 2018. Coming up, you know, it's mm-hmm. going to be five years. It's awesome. And uh, parts of it has flown by. And other parts have just, it's like watching paint dry. Yeah. Uh, you know, of the majority of, I mean, I'll say this again. I remember when I was in active addiction and you'd be in the process groups and somebody would go to you and goes like, imagine your life in five years. Oh, yeah. Yep. And imagine. Probably that, hard to do. It was really hard to do. And they go. Now times that by 100, that's what recovery looks like. And I was like, there's no way. Because I remember sitting in those rooms going, in five years, I just want to be able to see my kids. I want to be able to provide. And I want to have a, a roof over my head. And a bike with a basket on the front. That I, yeah. Yeah, I Maybe a car so I don't have to oh, drive yeah, that yeah. bike with a basket to get my kids milk. And <laughs> that's what I was aiming for. That's to yeah, me, pretty, pretty basic stuff, right? But to me – from the place where I was, that seemed amazing. Just sure. to be able to get through the day without a 12-pack of Bud Light. Just to get through the day without figuring out who I lied to and what plates I needed to keep in the air for the day. Yeah. You know, not being able to have to take a shot in the morning so my hand didn't shake. That, I mean, to me, that seemed great. And then times it by 100? That's crazy. Right. But here I am almost at five years, and my life is better than I could have ever imagined. So is it more than a hundred? I a thousand. Yeah. I mean, because every day is something new, and uh, you know, I I look at life now through new lenses uh, because I took a lot of stuff for granted. You know, and as we do sometimes. Yeah. You know, the other day it was daddy daughter dance for my daughter who's on the drill team, and um, you know. I'm there dancing with my daughter and with all the other dads, making a fool out of myself, having a great time and thinking, I might not have been here for this. Right. And and, and selfishly thinking, I might have let somebody else have this opportunity because alcoholism was going to take me down. So do you really in those moments, like, do you reflect on that like, while you're out there on the 100%. dance floor? Yeah. I'll tell you what. Um, and I don't know if I've ever told this story. Um my oldest daughter, who's now 18, she was on the drill team. It was her freshman year. And they do this daddy-daughter dance every year. Mm. And it's a way for the dads to come down here and dance with their daughters, and they teach them all this stuff. I'm right out of rehab. Uh, I'm, you know, not doing well. I mean, I'm doing better, but I'm not doing well. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I wasn't going to be able to be there for my daughter's dance. And uh, You don't remember the reason? I think I was out of town, and there was nothing I could do to get out of it. Okay. And so my ex-wife was married. Mm-hmm. And if I couldn't do it. Ah. Stepdad. Stepdad. And I and I think he's a great guy. I really enjoy him. Uh, we talk. Uh, I bought my car from him. Right. You know what I mean? But I called my ex-wife, and I said, hey, you don't have to honor this. You don't even have to listen to this if you don't want to. But if there is any way you could have our son dance with Presley other than let another dad do it. And she goes, why? I go, because I don't want somebody to have that opportunity before I do. Mm. I think that would break my heart and crush me. And you know what? To be honest, that guy – I feel bad now because he should have because he's stepped up when I was in rehab and done a lot of cool stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I know you have a good relationship. But but, but for me, in my head, and, and I think that would have messed me up so bad 
that I somebody else got this opportunity. Yeah. Because I was a selfish a-hole. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and now we go to drill, we sit and we talk and everything's good. And I was able to do it with my daughter right now. And now, right now, if I couldn't do it, I, I couldn't think of a better guy to do it. Yeah. But at that time, I mean, I, I get that. But I was, it was one of those things. And I called her and I go, hey, look, you, I don't know how much power I have right now. And probably and so not she a lot. honored that. Honored that. And, okay. and my son did. Bowden got, he got to step up and dance. Yeah. Right. He's and, probably pretty good at that, actually. Yeah. Well, they yeah. do this thing called drill down afterwards where it's kind of like military and they tell you moves and stuff. And yeah. we are sitting up in the stands and he goes, Dad, can I do it? And I was like, yeah, if you want to. <laughs> so he jumped down there with all the ladies and he was doing, doing it. Doing the drill and down. And just owning it, man. And yeah, I was like, good for you, bud. Good man. So I got a Bowden story. Yeah. So I'm driving down here today and my ex-wife calls me. She goes, did Bowden show you his bracelet? And I was like, no, Bowden got a bracelet? She goes, yeah. She goes, um, you want to know what it says? And I was like, what? <laughs> and she goes, wait. well, they had these bracelets and they went out to recess and they, they said that they could put uh, any word on there that meant something to them. And uh, you know what your son picked? <laughs> oh, boy. I said, what? She said, D's. These nuts. <laughs> <laughs> so right now, my son is walking around elementary school with the bracelet he made on. Well, that does mean something to a young man, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So I was like, so what did you do? And she goes, well, I, I didn't have the heart to tell him. Uh, that that's probably not a good idea. But it is funny. <laughs> it is funny. And so when he gets home from school today, you're going to have to have a talk with him and say, you can have that bracelet, uh, but probably don't wear it around school. <laughs> So, <laughs> oh man, let him wear it. I don't care. And so, and I, and I guess I tell that story to illustrate that, uh, yeah, my life is a thousand times yeah. better than I ever imagined. Yeah, you get to participate in your kids' lives and be present for all the things that they do, whether they're goofy or not. And have these interactions. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, well, I'm proud of you. I mean, it's, it, it, I really am. I appreciate it's been, it. It's been, I've watched you all these four and a half, almost five years. And I've been really impressed. Well, I, and, and thank you for going along this ride with me and Josh, the producer, and KSL and Bonneville Communications because, you know, really everybody had to be here to make this happen. And without one of you guys here, this wouldn't be what it is. Yeah. Well, we've had some good support. Yeah, and we've had Definitely. some great guests, and we've got another great guest today. But before we get to Zach Chisholm, who's going to be our guest today, who not only is going to tell his story of recovery, yeah. he can help you with your golf I swing. just wanted to pick his brain about golf. Yeah. That's, that's my main goal Yeah, today. PGA professional. Right. Uh, you've got uh, Matt's Mental Minute. Yes. The alliteration is flowing. I love it. And I really have to concentrate on that. <laughs> I notice. <laughs> I got to stop. I got to slow down. Yeah. Because, yeah. I have a quick one today. It's a little different. It's a quiz. Everybody can pipe can in Zach on this. Play? Zach can play. Pull I want Zach, Zach to play. So here's the quiz. If you had been diagnosed with cancer of the head or neck, mm-hmm. face, and you had to have like a surgery that caused disfigurement. So sometimes they have to remove your tongue or a portion of your tongue, your jaw, your teeth, your ear, like sometimes to save the patient that has to happen. And it's a, it happens more than you'd think. Yeah. Um, and you knew that that, that cancer was uh, likely caused by your drinking, your smoking, or your chewing. Uh, do you think that would be enough motivation to be done with it, done with your addiction after that? Just be like, you know what? I'm not chewing. I'm not drinking. I'm not smoking anymore. I'm done. I'll let just, Zach just, go first. Yeah. Do you think that would be enough motivation to be done? You uh, lost your tongue, your jaw. Sigmund Freud. I mean, Sigmund Freud lost his whole lower jaw from smoking cigars. Yeah. yeah. I. That's hard because I know a lot of people where they've been in that position where they've been in like liver failure mm-hmm. and other things too. That wasn't enough motivation for them. Like, how could that not be enough pain? You'd think it would be, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you, it, it's, I think it depends on which frame of mind you're in. If you're in active addiction, yeah. you will be able to rationalize it. And sometimes you will say, that is the cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. Right. And I chose this. And so this is the payment. And uh, I'm too that far could gone. Be irrational. I'm too far gone. Irrational, rational way to do it. I'm mm-hmm. too far gone. So I'm just going to ride this out. And a fatalist would say, "This is how I'm spent, supposed to go." Yeah, I guess so. Josh, do you need he's re- too pretty for. Do this you need question, to repeat the question? No, I, logic and reason aren't at the forefront of 
uh, an addict's mind, as we've learned on the podcast. True. So, how many times have we been on this podcast where somebody had what we thought was the ultimate rock bottom, and then yeah, and then the how we see them continues. go further? You know what I mean? Right. Where, where, where the normal person would be like. You just lost a marriage. You just lost your job, and you no longer have a driver's license, and you still don't think alcohol is the problem? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you guys are – that's a great segue into a new study that's out talking about the fact that about two-thirds of these patients – so a very select group of people in this study. These are people who have had head and neck and face, facial cancer. They've been – they've had disfiguring surgeries to cure their cancer. Now they're cured. They're out working in, in – uh, with psychotherapists. And the study shows that about two-thirds continue with their addiction. Well, that should just show you but how – that's a huge number. That should show you how powerful that addiction is. is. It is. I mean, we've When had, I read that, I was – I was – it really hammered home – Exactly what you're saying. All the stories that our guests have shared and how you and I have looked at each other and thought, well, that's got to be the rock bottom. And nope, sure enough. It just shows you how powerful addiction yeah. is. I mean, it, 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 I mean, it's we've had people on this podcast share some of the most and, – and I'll say it because it is cringeworthy things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that you would be like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. One, I can't believe you're saying this on a podcast. Can't believe you went through it yeah. at all. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I can't believe you went through it, and I can't believe you're openly sharing it. Listen, I hear some very personal things every day of my life because of my job. And then I'll come in here and hear stuff where I'm like, I've never heard that before. I know, right? right? Yeah. And, and, and and that should show you the underbelly and ugliness of addiction. Yeah. I mean, I feel like most people would be openly to, or hope so, share with the therapist because of the confidentiality. And sometimes they just need somebody to talk to. And there's, you know, this is the first time they've ever said it out yeah. loud. And so they feel secure. We have, we have some courageous people on this show. Amazing people. They're saying it to the world. I, I mean, you know. From being sex trafficked to uh, your your children eating your last pill, getting their stomach pumped, and then going out right out in the parking lot and getting another one. Yep. I mean, it's so many stories. Well, anyway, just to wrap it up, uh, I wanted to emphasize that. And you know what they said the number one psychological cause of continuing in the addiction was for that study? What? Denial. Oof. They weren't even trying to rationalize it. These people were just in denial that they really had a problem. Even after... They lost their nose or their face or their lips or their tongue. They still were in denial. That's how powerful uh, addiction can be. So when if you're listening to this show and you're wondering how powerful is addiction, that, that study, uh, wow. Should, should drive really, it home. Should definitely drive it home. Well, our guest today is Zach Chisholm. He's a PGA professional or was. Was, yep. Uh, an alcoholic. Yep. And a guy in recovery. Yeah. Are you also a father? No. And so uh, how many years of sobriety do you have? So I have a little over two years. Yeah. Okay. Before we take a break, do you remember when you were sitting in the rooms and somebody said, imagine your future? Did, did they do that to you? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and at that point, what were you hoping for? At that point, I was just hoping that I could just get my life back. Like I had this motivation of like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to get back in my golf career. Like I, I can get everything back that I lost. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, but there was other things too that happened where I had other motivation and like get back to school. Maybe I want to do something different than golf. There was something that was told to me when I was in treatment was maybe the world doesn't need any more golf professionals. Oh, and I don't now, think that's true. Yeah. No, right. I was like, you're wrong. <laughs> but I, uh, but it made me put it into perspective of like, maybe what is my purpose? So. And maybe it's something in the recovery world. Yeah. We're going to find out more about Jack, Ch- Zach. I said, Jack. It was close. They rhyme. Yeah. Yeah. Zach Chisholm. You're listening to Project Recovery. Stick around. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Zach Chisholm. Um, Where does the story of Zach begin? Yes. So I just want to say thank you for letting me come share my story. This has always been a cool opportunity for me to still dive deep into the causes and conditions of my disease. And Do you find it's helpful to you as a person to talk about your story? For sure, because it gives less power to the disease, right? Yeah. Like I can talk about it more and I don't have to hold on to it anymore. Yeah. Like I don't have yeah. to have the shame there. And there's something so freeing in that. Uh, I mean, I so I've been working with this guy named John Wilson and he's the chief photographer or was. He just got a, he's up, upper management now, but he still does my live shots every morning. 
And I feel bad for this guy because every time I talk to a new group or come into a new interview, somehow I bring my recovery into it. And mm-hmm. I think he's probably going, why, why do you always talk about your recovery? And I go, because I want to take the elephant out of the room. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? I don't want to just go in there and then afterwards go, well, he said he was an alcoholic, but I don't know. And, 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 yeah. and So I just go in there and I own it. You just control the narrative. And I've got four or five ice-breaking jokes that I use. Mm-hmm. Um that, that clear the ice and then that usually has them ask a question and we talk about a little bit and then we move on. But I find that rewarding for me because then I I don't worry about what they're thinking. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And if they have any questions, feel free to ask. Yeah. So you, by talking about your story, I understand completely what you mean when it says it takes the power away from the disease. Right. Yeah. Because it's like it doesn't have to – I don't have to see it as a weakness anymore. Like I can use it to help motivate others that are trying to get into recovery um, and it, yeah, I mean, I'm just able to honestly own it, own it, sitting gratitude that I'm living a better life today. And that's all that matters. Right. And so, so where does the story of Zach begin? So it begins, uh, so when I was about seven or eight years old, I started developing a lot of shame, um, at this point in my life. Well, my, how does a seven or eight year old develop shame? So it, for me, it was, I had a lot of step parents growing up. And so it, their ideology of what I was, I took that to heart. Like I saw it as truth. And so it, there was one time where my dad and my stepmom were arguing one time and I walked up the stairs and she told me he's never going to be a man ever. And wow. I wow. remember just being frozen and it hit me to my core and I was like, she's probably right because my dad was also speechless. And so I thought he thought the same thing. So I ran downstairs. I just isolated. I hid for a long time. Um, and then all these other things that happened with other step parents, my stepdad was very perfectionist person. Like it was like in order for me to validate my love with him was I had to have good grades. I had to be good at sports. I had to do these things. Like there was always a condition of, of his love. And it's like, man, if my parents are with these people, then I have to prove it. But if I don't, then I'm not lovable. Would you say as a kid, just in general, you were a pretty sensitive person as a kid? Yeah. And I was also just, I internalized everything too. Are you an only child? No. So I have uh, two older sisters. Um, they still live back in Indiana. That's where most of my childhood was. And um, and I've got three younger half brothers. So yeah, it's a, so you're a little bit in the middle. Yeah, I'm right in the middle. Um, and so, it, and, and, and I, I can speak from experience cause I've got two older daughters and a, and a son and you know, the, 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 the daughters is, is a different world than the son. And I was fortunate enough to grow up with an older brother, you know, who taught me a lot of things. And I had a younger brother that gave me the ability to teach, you know? And so a lot of times around my house, because my girls are so dominant that we have to come up with some stuff for my son, because for the longest time, he just got dragged along. They run the show. They run the show. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you know, he spends a lot of time at dance competitions, you know, just sitting <laughs> Apparently there. He knows how to drill down. Yeah. He's yeah. Learn, learning it. But I mean, did you feel that with your older sisters? So my older sisters, I always joke with them now because it's like they always picked on me. They were they would like pin me to the ground, tickle me till I peed my pants, right? <laughs> like just being a normal older sibling. And so it, for me, uh, I didn't really learn anything necessarily just because they're twins. And yeah. so they were always attached with each other. Oh, twins. Yeah. So they were best friends and I'm kind of just the, the oddball out. And so I just had a pretty much do it on my own, you know, and, or what I felt like I needed to do on my own. So at seven and eight, you remember uh, you're just feeling a lot of shame, a lot of shame. And I, I carried that for a really long time. Like it just developed as I got older and older. Um, especially when I was comparing myself to other people and their successes, um, and going to school. And so Dr. Matt, so what is, cause you work with children. Yeah. And it's probably not uncommon to have a seven and eight year old feel some shame. What is that like growing with you? Does does that make sense? Well, yeah. So you're kind of – you're coming into your teenage years. You're starting to develop your identity. That's why I asked about sensitivity because a lot of uh, our basic traits kind of determine how we develop and think about ourselves in the world. So somebody who's not very sensitive and introspective 
um, might just blow that stuff off like, I'll be a man, you know, like whatever. A, a really sensitive, introverted kid might take that to heart like you're saying. And so if that's your style, that's not a one-off thing. You're taking lots of things to heart. That one is a pretty horrific one that stands out in your mind. But there were probably a lot of little things at elementary school in the neighborhood with your older sisters, things that were said here and there. And instead of it kind of pinging off you because you might have been one of those like, you know, dough-headed boys like, you know, like, oh, I don't know what are you mm-hmm. talking about. But a lot of boys are really very sensitive. Actually, um, Michael Thompson's a psychologist. If anybody's out there and ha- is raising boys, you should read Michael Thompson's book called um, Raising Cain. And there's a PBS special on that. And he talks about the fact that actually biologically boys t- and emotionally tend to be more sensitive at a young age than girls by f- overall. But we we socialize them differently. So I would imagine to answer your question, what that that developed into some identity traits where you started to think less of yourself or or at least more um, self-conscious, easily feeling uh, like you don't belong or there's something wrong with you. Would you say that's true? No, very true. Yeah. As I, as I started getting older, it was like I had to fight to like fit in, mm-hmm. even though I probably didn't need to, but that's how and that's I felt. that self-consciousness, right? right? Like your yeah. friends probably would have been like, what are you talking about? You're awesome. Yeah. You know, but like you've probably felt awkward, like you didn't fit in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you carried that into uh, elementary and maybe into junior high, you think? Junior high, well, really, all the way up. Junior high is the worst. Yeah, junior high is terrible. You know, you're you're just trying to fit in anywhere that you can. Um, And it just, honestly, that carried up until I went into treatment, to be honest. Like, I, pretty much my entire life, I've lived in a place of shame and that identity. Um, I remember the first time that ever went away, though, was when I was 14 years old, and that's when I had my first drink. Really? Yep. What were the circumstances of that? So the circumstances of that, so my, they were, my sisters were actually the ones that introduced the alcohol to me. Um, but it was because I was open for it. Right. Like I saw, cause I wanted to fit in. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and it, they would have been what? 16, 17. So at this point, let's see, I think they had just graduated high school and they were in their freshman year of college at Indiana university. And so they had come home for the weekend and, we had this house party cause my parents were out of town cause they were watching me. And, um, that's when they started making screwdrivers for me. And I was just like, Oh man, I feel great. So I started socializing with their friends. Like I don't feel like so introverted anymore. And it was like a superpower for me. Like that's how I viewed it. It was like, man, like everything that is in my head has just gone away. And everything you wanted to be, you were, I was, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was awesome. And so until it wasn't right. Yeah. And so, um, and then there was another time before I moved back to Utah. Um, it was right after my freshman year in high school, I went to Indiana university with my sisters and we just, I went to a house party with them. And again, I felt the same thing. I was like, man, I feel confident. I feel boosted. Like all the worry in my head is gone. So, so I don't, would you have, do you look back on it now? Do you feel like you were an anxious kid? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that people don't understand about anxiety is it's largely the the initial baseline of it is is inherited. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times people have this high level of tension and introversion and that's their norm. So all of your life up until 14, you were just like, well, you didn't probably reflect on anything. You were just like, this is how I am. Right. And then you have that drink and it goes away. And I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that that is sort of like almost a magical experience. Well, we've had people on the podcast, and, and whether it was alcohol, their first opiate, uh, whatever it is, they, they go, like, all of a sudden boom. it was like they just feel this, this, this calming effect over them. And they're just like, oh, and, and, and we, how many people we've had on this podcast goes, that's how everybody else must feel. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so then at that point, I mean, I didn't really – I took advantage of every time that we had alcohol but so when I was in high the, school. Up to this point, yep. yeah, I mean, it wasn't every day. No, no. I mean, it was like maybe like New Year's Eve parties at a friend's house or if somebody had a hold of alcohol. Like it was every once in a blue moon, right? But it was like always that that chase, you know? Mm-hmm. I was like, this is my medicine. This is what helps me. So yeah, let's do it. And so... It, in high school, didn't really dive into it. I was always doing high school sports, so it, we were always getting drug tested, and so I wasn't really trying to drink mostly. 
uh, during that time. It was a lot during the summertime when we would go over to a friend's house, but, um, but this, the same effect happened every single time. Um, and then, so I didn't grow up religious. Um, when I moved to Utah, that's when, uh, most of my family members are LDS. And so when I came back from Indiana to Utah, it was always a conversation. Like, are you going to join the church? And I said, well, my mom told me that I can't join until I'm 18. It has to be my decision. Uh, how old were you when you moved back to Utah? So I was 15 when I moved back. Why did you move back? So my mom had just got divorced and um, we just wanted to be closer to family. Um, it was really hard being away from my dad. I'd see him only three times a year. I'd fly back and forth only for the holidays, right? And so it just made more sense for us to be back home where everybody was at. Okay. So, um, and so even when you moved back here with your mom, you had family members asking you about the church and your mom said, Hey, look, when you're 18, you can make up your mind and do whatever you want. Right. And that's always been, and that was always a stipulation. Cause it was like, my cousins were getting baptized at eight and I was like around that same age. And I'm just like, that kind of looks fun. Right. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, I want to do a party. that. Yeah. They get a party, they get all this stuff. And she was like, well, it needs to be your decision. And so, um, as I got through high school, my mom and I didn't really have a really good relationship. Um, a lot of that resulted from codependency. A lot of that just resulted from me isolating and not wanting to be around. And she took that as, oh, you don't want to be around me, you know? So that's where you say it, the traits follow and yeah. uh, and where she was internalizing a lot of that stuff. And so um, I saw that as like a, as a help for our relationship when I started getting in closer to 18 because I was getting kicked out of the house. I was being rebellious. I was not listening, you know? And, um, and so when I turned 18, that's when I decided to get baptized and become a member of the church. Um, and you thought that would help your relationship? I thought that would help. Right. Was your mom Mormon? uh, At the time? No, no. She, when my parents got divorced, she had left the church. Um, and so she removed her records, everything. Um, and then, but shortly after I was baptized, my mom, uh, she was meeting with the bishop and I had the opportunity to rebaptize her. And she, it kind of just brought us together in that moment, right? And our relationship still was kind of a little shaky, but not as shaky because now there was like, I started learning values um, that I wanted to hold to. And, uh, and so our relationship started to mend, I think, from that point. Now, at this point, after you got baptized, were you still drinking at all? No, no, because I didn't want to ruin it. Yeah. I was just like, I'm washed, I'm clean. Like, I don't, want to, I don't want to do that stuff anymore. But that's where most of that shame cycle started coming from, too, was because, like, it was an all or nothing idea. Like, if I mess up, I'm going to lose all of it. They're going to take it all. Yeah, they're going to take it all. And eventually that did happen. Because you get fixated on that. Yeah. I mean, or at least I would. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. That's why still to this day people go, uh, so you're done drinking. And I go, for today. Yeah. Because I can I – can, that's palatable to me. Right. Yep. An eternity is a long time. and got to live in the now. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so I, maybe that's kind of similar with you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like now I can look at it as like one day at a time. Where before I was so concerned about the future and I would future trip a lot. And eternity. And eternity, yeah. This and is like this is my salvation on the thinking, line. Right? right. People who overfocus on the future have much higher rates of anxiety. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, right after I graduated high school, made the decision to serve a mission. Uh, and so as soon as I turned nineteen, turned my papers in, uh, got called to the uh, Georgia Atlanta North mission. And I love Georgia. Georgia is such an awesome state and the people down there are great. And, uh, but it was still new to me. Like a lot of the guys that were going on their missions had been in the church for their entire life and I'm still just learning. And so I just use it as a learning opportunity, um, to really gauge where I was at, you know? And, but the thing is, is I still had in the back of my mind to still be rebellious. And, um, as I continued on, um, we're going to make you stop right there. Okay. We're going to take a break. When we get back, we're going to find out what the mission looks like yeah. as Zach's out in Atlanta. You're listening to Project Recovery. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Willier. Our guest today is Zach Chisholm, uh, who just uh, is on his mission. And you're in Atlanta, Georgia? Yeah. 
And yep. you say you love the town. I love the town. Yeah. And you're still learning, uh, but you said you've got a little rebellious nature still left in you. Yeah. So it it was probably a mistake that my mission president had me serve in the Athens stake because I was around the University of Georgia. I was around, and then I also got transferred over to Marietta, and I was at Kennesaw State, so I was at college campuses. Mm-hmm. And you already time. had some college campus experience Yeah, with your yeah, sisters, it brought right? back a lot of memories, yeah. yeah, of how fun college could be. You know, we need and, to stop and talk about that a second, because that memory is powerful. Oh, if yeah. you think about it, in his early childhood, he said he dealt with a lot of shame, and the only time he felt awesome was the times you was drinking. Mm-hmm. Right, and that... And we know things become associated. So your drinking was with your older sisters and at times on their college campus. And so now you're only a year, you know, into being a Mormon and you're you're on college campuses and you're the same age now as everybody on the campus. I think that can be a little dicey. Yeah. So getting a 19, 20 year old kid on a college campus, there's girls everywhere. There's alcohol everywhere. Like it was it was crazy. Like it, it, it just continued to trigger those things in my head where it was like, man, that looks way more fun than what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like I had, I had no, no foundation at all whatsoever. And I got to imagine, uh, you walking around the campuses, seeing people party. I'm pretty sure there was probably some invitations. Oh, for sure. A hundred percent. You know, where, where it was maybe a joke or a lark, but let's see if we can get the Mormon or, drunk. Or even just ignorance. Like sometimes they're like, Oh, do you want, I mean, they don't know that you don't drink. Right. And, you know, that kind but of every time they asked, it was like, there was always maybe in my head. Even though I would say no, there was always maybe in my head. The attic brain. Correct. Jumping in with the maybe. Right. Yep. And so um, I had been out for about 18 months, and that's about when I was at Kennesaw State. Um, we were directly uh, on campus. We were working with a lot of college kids, and um, there was a less active member that was starting to come to these activities. But she was starting to kind of have this attachment with me that – I didn't see at first, but she was wanting a little bit more, right? Mm-hmm. And so she started being infatuated with me. And um, until I realized that's what was happening, um, I was in a place where I didn't really care. I was 18 months on my mission. Like, I was almost home. Like, why not? I wasn't really following the rules anyway at this point. Still hadn't drank. Um, but she came over and she was dropping off dinner. And one thing led to another. And I eventually had sex with this girl on my mission. Um that's when the shame happened again. Kick back just like that. Right in a full gear because I knew what was going to happen after this point. Um, and I called my mission president the next day and I told him I had sex with a girl. And he was like, hey, we're going to pack your stuff up. You're for sure going home. Um, but we got to do a disciplinary council out here. Um, I'm curious as to, you know... Um what goes on in the disciplinary council? And if you can't tell me, you can't tell me. No, no. So what goes into that is they pretty much have like the mission presidency sitting there and they ask you questions of what happened and pretty much tell you, well, this is probably why that happened. You weren't following the rules. You weren't doing this. You weren't doing that. And so they try to get as much information out of you as possible so that they can come up with a decision on if you're still going to be a member of the church or not. Okay. Right. And like the severity of the sin. Right. And so... As soon as I went through that council, um, I had, I catastrophized to the worst. I'm getting excommunicated from the church, right? But I didn't get excommunicated. I got disfellowshipped, which was like a, like a probationary period. I still had my membership in the church, but I couldn't do X, Y, Z. Sacrament. Couldn't take the sacrament. Couldn't speak in church. Couldn't pray. Couldn't do anything. I just pretty much show up, pay my tithing, go home, right? And as soon as I got home from... Uh, I remember calling my mom actually, and I was just crying because I knew like this was just going to break everything. And she was, she was like, it's fine. We're going to get you home. We miss you. Like, it's going to be okay. But I couldn't get over that. And so as soon as I came home from my mission, it didn't mean anything. Like my family was there. They had a homecoming sign, like stuff like that. In my head, it's like, this isn't valid. And uh, because of the shame. I, I continue to feel. So people who may not be entrenched in LDS culture, sure. like serving a mission is is a big deal it and is. it's expected. 
and the full two years are expected. Right. And I think when people come home early from their mission, even if it's for a healthcare reason uh, or or any reason, everybody has questions. Why are they home? What's going on? Right. And I've talked to so many countless uh, missionaries, men and women, who have come home early for various reasons and have to deal with uh, embarrassment, uh, shame, all of that. Controversy. Uh, yeah, lots of lots of that. And um, luckily, it sounds like you had a very supportive family, but the culture in your ward and, you know, just even, you know, people ask about a mission like, oh, where did you serve your mission? And you talk about it, you know, like that can be something a person holds on to sometimes for the rest of their life in yeah. a shameful way. Yeah. And from that point on, like as soon as I came home, like I just knew, like, I guess this isn't for me. Right. And, uh, the church in general. Is, right. Yeah. Yeah. And this whole lifestyle. And so, and that, and that's, that goes to show you once again, the attic brain, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Where we will lean into the, the, the dumbest stuff because, you know, we've already beat ourselves up mentally. We're ashamed. Uh, we've got all this stuff. And so then you start going, well, I guess this is my road. I, you know what I mean? Yeah. I tried to go down this road and I couldn't make it. So, you know what? This is my road. And yeah. you just lean into it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and so as soon as as soon as I came home, it was probably within three days. I go to my buddy's house, and he had beer in the fridge, and I was like, "Hey, can I have one?" And they all kind of look at me like, "Yeah, I guess." And I went in there and I drank like five, and I was like, "Here's money to go buy more," because I almost just drank all your beer in your fridge. And from that point on, like my my drinking just took off. And, uh, as soon as I turned, I was 20 when I came home and so I couldn't buy it for me. So I was always going to his house every weekend to go drink. As soon as I turned 21, I had free reign everywhere. I, I, I don't know if this is accurate. Uh, you're a therapist, so you know, when you first drank, you felt awesome and yeah. you felt like you were the man you were. Yeah. This time it seems like when you're drinking, you're not drinking to find that anymore It's to forget about the shame. For sure. And yeah. so, so now the, that was exactly what I was thinking about. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So now I'm coping with the pain that I've gone through or that I'm putting myself through. And now I've just resulted to alcohol in a completely different way. And that's when my, that's when drinking became great to not so great. Yeah. You know, I, during my drinking career, like I had just started working at Thanksgiving Point Golf Club. I was trying to get my PGA card, uh, with the Utah section. I was trying to, um, you know, just do all these things. But the reason why I had to take my test five times was because I was just drinking all the time. I finally passed was because I was on probation for my first DUI in 2017. And so I wasn't drinking at that time. Yeah. Yeah, The force sobriety. And I finally, my game was on point. And and what's crazy is that an addict won't look back and go, Hey, I finally passed it because I was sober. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't drink. You go, but I'm going to drink again. Yeah. Well, now I can drink and celebrate. Yeah, yeah exactly. And <laughs> yeah. I did. And it was because I knew I wasn't going to get you aid probably till Wednesday or Thursday. So it would be out of my system by that time. And so that's like the, the rational brain that I always had. And so, um, at any point when you're drinking, uh, does your mom or your family go, Hey, you might be taking this drinking thing a little too far. Or did you keep it hidden from them? I I didn't really drink in front of them a lot. Um, It wasn't until, so I was engaged at one point in time uh, during 2016 till about 2018. And it was just a really toxic relationship and I just had to get out of it. And so got out of it. Um, But again, that validated like, oh, you're not going to be a man. You're not going to grow up to be any of these things because she had a daughter. I was a parent for those two years that I was with her. But because it didn't work out, I was like, I'm a bad I'm about to up as a failure, yeah, a personal should, failure. Exactly. Yeah, because it didn't work out. Yeah. And so I had moved back in with my mom. And by this time, it's 2018. I think I'm 25 at this point. Kind of getting towards the end of my golf career because I'm now just drinking because of more pain. And that's when I started resulting to cocaine, methamphetamine. As soon as I hit meth, like it, there was nothing else beyond that. Because it, that was the thing that helped me drink more. And so, which is insane because, yeah. you, you know what I mean? You're taking a drug so you can take more of another drug. Right. Oh, that ha- that's a, that's a popular thing these days, actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's with the kids in college. It's Adderall. It's uh Coke. Cocaine. Yeah. It's, it's making a resurgence. Right. Uh, so but just like, so you can drink more. Right. Right. Which seems 
silly. You're spending more money so you can spend more money over here and do this that's hurting you more. I mean, I can say that now with, you know. With the, From an outsider's perspective. Yeah. It seems crazy. But, but when but, you're, when you're yeah. a partier, it's like, yeah. It's a solution. Yeah. Let's, okay. Yeah. So by that point, I'm now drinking because I just want the pain to go away and I'm just numbing with everything that I can find. Right. I become an alcoholic at this point. But you'd worked really hard to to in your golf career. And as you started to see it slip away, did that give you pause at all to to get sober? No. Like, like I just I just accepted that I was done. You know, like Casey said, we're just, well, I guess this is my life now. Right. Like this it, is the, the payment. My last professional round was in 2019 at the Utah Open at Riverside Country Club. And I took dead last. Mm. And it was because I raged the night before. I show up. My dad's knocking on my door at 7 a.m. because I got to get there for my tea time. I'm still pass out drunk. He wakes me up. We go to the course. I shotgun two beers in the parking lot. I go to the range. I shank half of my shots. And then I go play and shoot like a 96 Mm. and I'm in dead last. So the next day I'm still got withdrawals because I didn't go drink the night before because of the day before. And I was like, I at least want to perform a little bit better, right? Like this is embarrassing. Yeah. And I shot an 86, I think. Didn't make it into the weekend, was still put at dead last. And at that point I, I projected that I was the laughing stock in the Utah section. And that's when everything, like I had left my career, I stopped working in the golf industry. I decided to go work in insurance for some reason because I felt like that was cool at the time because it was anything away from golf. Um, and then as I continued on, uh, the pain got worse and worse. COVID happened and I was working from home and that gave me more excuse to drink because I could drink at home. No one was supervising me. Right? A lot of people developed a problem yeah. during COVID. Yeah. yeah. And so then and the fact is that you're at this point, 26, 27, and shouldn't need to be supervised. Right. But exactly. you know what I mean? I mean, but that's, but that's how an addict brain thinks is like, if you think you're getting in a way with something, yeah. then I'm going to get away with it. Right. It's just the way we think. It's like, you're right. It's like, normally I wouldn't drink until five because you can't drink at work, but hey. I'm at home. Yeah. And I'm working. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. And so at that point, um, I was starting to work at my buddy's bar up in Cottonwood Heights. Um, and so again, that was another feel for me where it was just like, Hey, I get a couple drinks for free after work. Most of my income that was coming from that job was going back into the bar. Like I pretty much became a part owner because I was putting all my money in there, you know, <laughs> investing and, nightly. Yeah, I was yeah. investing all of my money into this bar. And so I, and it just became this lifestyle, man, where I was just like, I woke up, was drinking. And then it finally got to the point where it was like, if I didn't have a bag and I didn't have alcohol with me, it was going to be a crazy day. So I was is, not going to make it. So what does your rock bottom look like? So my rock bottom happened in, uh, so New Year's day of 2021. Um, we had just got done working at the bar. We went back the next morning, uh, to clean up the mess from new year's and uh we were drinking all day we were watching football we were watching bowl games drinking while we were cleaning the bar and i just kept drinking and uh we decided to just have a party because we couldn't party the night before so i drank all the way up until about eleven thirty, and we started drinking about 9 a.m and so i got in an argument with one of my buddies at the time and i just decided to hop in my car and i just started driving um and I was going 65 to 70 miles an hour on 33rd South. Mm. Oh. And because I was just mad, I was just ready to, at this point, I was just like, dude, if I get in a car accident, I don't even care if it takes me perfect. And, um, thank God that there was a highway patrolman that was right there before the freeway, because who knows what it would happen when I was on the freeway. So officer Gerard with the highway patrol pulled me over. You know his name. I do. And it's ingrained because he, he helped he helped me. He was one of the only people at that time that was like trying to de-escalate the situation and trying to find solution for me. He had mentioned that he was in recovery. Um, he was trying to help me because I kept saying like my head hurts. He's like, did you get in a fight? Did you do this? And I said, no, my head hurts, but I just couldn't. 
I couldn't find the words to express the emotion that was actually going through my body at the time. And, um, and did so, he pull you over or did you get in an accident? No, he pulled me over. Yeah, he pulled me over on the OMRAP at 33rd South. And so at that point, I rolled down the window, had my mask on, thinking he wouldn't be able to smell it. But then I was just completely honest with him. I'm like, dude, I'm messed up. Like, I'm, I'm drunk. I Just take me to jail. And he was like, I'm not going to do that. Like, I think because at COVID at the time, they weren't taking people to jail mm-hmm. uh, for a DUI. They were just taking them to the highway patrol office. Someone come pick you up. He's like, is there anyone we can call? And he, I was like, yeah, call my mom. So he took me back to the office. He saw my golf clubs in the back of the car when he pulled me over. He was like, do you like to golf? I'm like, yeah, I used to be a pro, but I'm not anymore. You know, just in a very negative mindset, man. And he was like, dude, I think you need to get some help. And I hope you get it. And he started sharing his story with me a little bit of some of the things that he went through. And at the time I was so drunk that I could barely remember the conversation, but it still was ingrained in me of what he was saying. He was wanting me to get help. Like he was one of the only people that had told me, maybe you've got a problem. Maybe you need to go find a solution. Prior to this, any of your friends or anybody ever mentioned that you have a problem? No, because they're all alcoholics, right? <laughs> like they're not gonna they're not gonna admit something that yeah. they are to me, right? And so there was a, at that point, this was the first person to like actually say, maybe you need to go find some help. And uh, I laid in bed. I was detoxing for four days in my bed. Didn't move, maybe got out to go to the bathroom, but went straight back to my bed, was in a really deep depressive state, was going through a lot of suicidal ideation, just because at this point, I'm like, this is my second DUI. I've told myself I'd never get another one. The first one, I was like, everybody gets a a DUI at number one. (laughs) But the second one, I was like, dude, I'm probably the lowest of the low of people right now. And that's when... I finally hit my knees and I prayed for the first time. I'm like, I don't know if I have the heart to kill myself. I, I just want to find out if my life is worth something because my entire life, I didn't know if it was and I needed to find out. And so I prayed and thankfully during my career, when I was the tournament director at Thanksgiving point, I ran uh, golf tournaments for Renaissance ranch. I ran it for Wasatch recovery. I did CA events. I did AA events. And so I had a lot of resources to reach out to. Alema Harrington used to do the radio show down at our studio at Thanksgiving Point mm-hmm. with Ben Criddle. And so I knew he was in recovery because I, I ran his tournament for him. Um, didn't know if he had the same telephone number, so I never texted him because I'm like, he, oh, he's kind of a celebrity. I don't know if I can mm-hmm. just reach out to him, you know. But I started calling these centers. Wasatch Recovery said I needed to still detox for another seven days. And I'm like, I don't know if I've got seven days because I have this plan in my head. Like if I can't get somewhere... And that's like a sign from God that maybe I just, maybe life is done. So that's when I called Renaissance Ranch and Brian Heaton, he's been on the the podcast. Yeah. Um, I call him. I'm like, Hey dude, this is Zach from Thanksgiving point. He's like, Hey, what's going on, man? Cause he's a big golfer. And I was like, it's not too good. And he's like, Oh, I'll take you off speakerphone. (laughs) 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 And so at that point he, uh, he was like, dude, you live five minutes from the ranch. Like, stop by let's talk because i just wanted to find resources i like i had no intention of really going in there they were at a network with my insurance and uh and so we just we just had a chat and so he was pretty much at that time really doing like a pre-assessment sure right and just seeing like okay when was the last time you drank uh you know trying to get more information from me but he shared a little bit of his story and that's what offered me like that grain of hope that maybe my life could be different. If he's been at that point, I could probably get there. And so we chatted for a couple hours and then he told me, he's like, the hardest thing now is you're going to go home. You're going to pack a bag. You're going to be back here at like six o'clock and you're going to check in for 60 days. And so that's when the light turned on and I was like, this is my opportunity. And I went home had my mom sign a power of attorney so she could take care of stuff while I was in treatment and went into, went into rehab. And that's where I had my spiritual awakening of the things that I, I was thinking about was not logical, even though it felt like it was, it wasn't logical. And I was able to really let go of a lot of resentment that I had with myself, with other people that put me in situations 
really owning my side of the street. But that doesn't just happen. It doesn't. You've got to do the work. And I think sometimes people forget that the, you know these uh, treatment centers or these outpatients or whatever they are, they're great resources. But they're just resources. If you don't do the work, it right. doesn't it, – it's not – there's a lot of people who think they're going to send their kid away or their loved one or somebody for 30 days and they're going to come back. That's not how this works. Right. Yeah. Uh, you, you know – You've got to get to that point where you want it, and you wanted it. I wanted it, and we were kind of talking before. Like, if I was to go into any treatment center other than Renaissance Ranch, I probably would have got it because I was at this point of willingness that I just wanted my life to be different. I'd hit my bottom. I needed to change. We've had four or five people on the podcast who said, (laughs) if they would have told me to put my head in the toilet, I'd have done it. Yeah. Just because that's how willing I was to do whatever it takes to help me get through this. And, and it, sometimes, I mean, I don't recommend doing that, but it's that kind of commitment to a program yeah. or to a lifestyle change that you need to well, get you through this. One of the things uh, that I get a lot, and I know you get probably more than I do, are, you know, like recommendations from like a parent or a loved one who's like, I, you know, my loved one here, they need a place to go. What's the best place to send them? And of course I have, you know, a list of, of places that I think are quality places, but I always follow that up with, it actually doesn't matter if they are willing to do the work. If they're not willing to do the work, it also doesn't matter because these places that I've recommended are all top quality places with top quality resources and people, but you have to be in a place to say, I'm going to go in there and do whatever they tell me to do. Picking a recovery center is like picking a pair of pants. (laughs) I mean, it's just stupid. I'm, 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 hear me out. I'm, I'm listening. Me and you go to the same store and pick the same pair of pants. They're going to fit each of us different. And one's going to feel a little bit better and make yep. my butt pop a little bit better. And to me, that's the one that I would go, okay. The butt popping jeans. I like yep. these jeans. Yeah. And it's the same thing with the recovery center. You go there and this one's more holistic. This one's got a different modality. This one's AA. What's going to fit you better? So you've got to check out. And I always tell people, because I get the question all the time, yeah. I, I've got a list of five or six that I sent. And I go, that's a, to the extent of what I can help you with. Now you need to call. You need to ask them what their program is, what their modality is, what they work with, and and, and figure out what's going to make sense to you or your loved one going in there. So there's a goodness of fit aspect. I totally agree. But there's also just the willingness to do it, the oh, humility. I, yeah, right? I, yeah. I mean, I, and I think those two things, if you can find the, a good fit for you, but you're humble and at a low probably and motivated, you'll make it happen. We've had people on the podcast who've gotten sober white knuckling it. Yeah. We've had people who've gotten sober through NA, AA, CA. Sure. Uh, and, 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 and all the other different resources, uh, you know, treatment centers. I don't, we've probably had one from just about every treatment center in the state. Pretty close, yeah. And if not, we want you on. Yeah. What did you like about Renaissance Ranch? So one of the things that I liked was uh, I never really dove into the 12 steps or really had an understanding of what the 12 steps were, but it was an action program. Like I had to work the steps, but then I reframed it to be like, oh, I get to work the steps because this is what I get to do today, right? So the 12 steps were really what attracted me to recovery. Because it's a path. It's, it's a, a plan. Path. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a plan for me to be able to get through um Understanding my disease, understanding a higher power of my understanding, which was really crucial for me because I don't have to worship the God that I thought was condemning me for the rest of my life because I messed up, right? And so now I, I'm i able to work those steps and I was able to receive a lot of healing. And the, one of the main people that helped me throughout my step five was Christian Smith. He came to the ranch. Awesome dude. Awesome dude. And he's a mentor for me. And he recovery. owns the swearing record on this podcast. Does he? Yeah. Yes, he Good does. for him. He sat down and yeah. says, I don't swear, and then proceeded to swear throughout the whole podcast. Yeah. Personally, <laughs> I that doesn't shock me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he helped me, and he honestly allowed me to let go a lot of my baggage. And when I confessed to God, to myself, and to another human being the exact nature of my wrongs, and I let go all of the uh, take it to the grave secrets. Like I had so much weight lift off me and I had this light. People were saying I had a pregnancy glow because it was just like, (laughs) I finally let go of all this stuff that's been weighing me down. So let's go back to the first of the podcast. When you said somebody in recovery said, maybe the world doesn't need another golf pro. Yeah. 
That wasn't Christian. No, he, but, he but, still wishes I was a golf pro because but, then he could get all the benefits. What, what I'm getting at is is that you found somewhere else that you might be able to make a difference and make a change. Yeah. So now at this point, um, when I graduated treatment, I went up to Idaho and I helped the ranch open up a residential center in Hayburn um, and was part of that great experience, opening up a safe place for the men of Burley to be able to receive help. Um but because at the time I didn't have my license, I wasn't able to really get around. I was pretty isolated up there. That's when I made the decision to move back. And uh, Drew Red, he's been on this podcast too. I just know a lot of people on yeah. the podcast. Oh, yeah. And so uh, I reached out to him because he had mentioned to me when I was in treatment, he's like, dude, if you want a job, let me know. And I reached out to him and I've been at Ardu Recovery since. I was a tech there for uh, the first half of my year there. And then, uh, in September I took over as the outpatient director. So I run all of the outpatient programming, uh, at our due and it's been a cool experience. We're, we're really growing the program. We're developing a culture where it's not all about the money. Like we just want people to get help. And so, and it's a cool holistic approach to recovery too. Like we've got resources for 12 step base. We've got well Bridey, uh, teachings down at our due. We've got, um, you know, CBT, that people can go off of and it's just an awesome experience. And so I get to help other individuals find what works and that's, uh, that's way more rewarding than teaching somebody a golf lesson. That's not going to listen to you. So my next question was <laughs> what's going to be more gratifying dropping a 30 foot putt or helping somebody into sobriety. I still think at this point is helping somebody into sobriety, man, like the 30 foot putts, they're cool. But it's just like it's just like taking a drink of alcohol. It's only cool for that quick second, and then you go to the next tee box and you shank your tee shot. <laughs> you know, this guy knows his golf. Yeah, yeah, that's what happens all the time. And so, but there's always that that reward um, of being of service and helping other people, and that will always be way better. I I, I love it. I mean, I his story. You know, we've been doing this for four and a half years. Is unique in the fact that you know what I mean. Um, the way he got into alcohol and then how alcohol turned on him and was basically two different things for him. For sure. What I, yeah, I love the fact that uh, you've been willing to talk about and share what I would consider a mental health um, issue, which is you know our identity and our anxieties and how we think about ourselves. I talk to people all the time, thoughts, feelings, behaviors. How you think about things influences how you feel and what you do. And so if you grow up thinking negatively about yourself, well, that makes you feel down and less than, and you end up doing behaviors that are self-destructive, right? And so it's easy to, you know, you work so hard to become a golf pro, but that that addict mind and, and that negative self-concept to kind of let you just be like, well, whatever, I guess it's what I'm doing now. You let it go instead of fight for things. And I think it's important for people listening to the show that um, alcohol may not be your DOC, but if you're struggling with identity issues and anxiety, you've got a DOC somewhere because we that's a miserable way to go through life. And so we we may turn to Netflix or sugar or soda pop or oversleeping or porn yeah. uh, or, you know, heroin. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I appreciate somebody so much like you, Zach, who's willing to come on the show because just like Officer Gerard helped you because he was willing to open up and talk. And that's a lot for a police officer to do in a situation like that. But good for him. And now, man, I'm just so impressed with a guy like you who can open up and talk to people every day. And, and somebody else has probably had with you that first time feeling that you had with Officer Gerard, and that's powerful. I'm amazed because uh, when you first sat down, you said at a young age you felt shame, and you remember your stepmother saying, you will never be a man. But the guy that's sitting in front of me right now has done two amazing things. And hear me out. One is become a member of the PGA. You know the percentage of people who actually make it? Low. Mm-hmm. Not only that, you're a guy in recovery with two years of sobriety underneath your belt. Once again, you know the percentage of people that make that? Very low. Yeah. Yeah. So you are a man and you are a fighter and I'm glad to call you a friend. And I'm so happy that you came by and shared your story on Project Recovery. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, that was awesome. Yeah, it was good. And, and I walk away with these always feeling so good. 
Yeah, you know what else I like? You said, Zach. I know a lot of guys that have been on the podcast, and to me, that's cool because there's a community of people out there in the recovery world, and we get to be a little bit a part of that. You know what mm-hmm. we should do? We should have Josh, a producer, put this together. Yes, we should have a a party or a coffee and invite everybody who's been oh on the podcast to come and hang out. Yes, let's do it. And Josh, then open budget it up for the that? public. Yeah, Josh. Can we, we afford that? We can afford There's that. We have a lot of people around here. I, well, we I don't make any money, but we can afford that. But I think that would be cool to have everybody come down. If you've ever been a guest on the podcast, come, I think that would be amazing. Come share your story and hang out and just meet other people. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. This summer. Turn it into a yearly thing. Yeah. yeah. Have, a, have a yearly hang An out. alumni. A Project Recovery Whoa. alumni. Are we getting shirts? Oh my gosh, I like <laughs> it. We're going to get All shirts. Right, We're going to say D's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to edit that. Nice. Hey, thank you for stopping by and allowing us to uh, do what we do and love so much. You've been listening to Project Recovery. In case you forgot, Dr. Matt, what? It's a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.